trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington coming to you with another Access to Excellence podcast. My guest today is Charles Chavis, an assistant professor of conflict resolution in history at George Mason and director of African and African-American studies. Dr. Chavis is also the founder and executive director of Mason's John Mitchell Jr. Program for History, Justice, and Race, which contributes to and promotes a more informed public, political, and academic dialogue on intersections between historical memory, justice, and racial reconciliation. Dr. Chavis's new book, The Silent Shore, The Lynching of Matt Williams, and the Politics of Racism in the Free State explores the December 4th, 1931 lynching of Matt Williams in Salisbury, Maryland. After he was lynched, Williams' body was set ablaze. Dr. Chavis is the vice chair of the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which researches cases of racially motivated lynchings in the state and holds public hearings where a lynching of an African-American by a white mob has been documented. He's also a member of Mason's task force on anti-racism and inclusive excellence that is taking steps to build systems of equity at George Mason University and to remove bias from the culture at the university. This is a discussion I've been looking forward to. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Washington. Now let's talk a little bit about your early days, there's a story that you reference about a turning point in your life when your high school social studies teacher told the class that hatred and racism would consume people if they know it. Talk about why that stuck with you and why do you think it set you on this path of research, discovery, and education? Um, that was my AP U.S. history class with Ms. Lynn Edwards. I went to a predominantly white high school, and I remember that day even when we were going through the Bull Connor unit and the Civil Rights unit. Uh, you know, high schools can't teach that these days. Exactly, right. That was back, and this was in a predominantly you know white school I was getting this, right? So I was learning about this, and, and you know, Ms. Edwards was really just very vocal and bold about telling the truth around race, even then, right? And I think that really informed me being around a group of whites who didn't have to speak out against racism, but they chose to use the privilege they had to do so, quite honestly, and also take history and make the connections to this day, right? The way I approach history is, is just that way. You know, I think we can learn from the past, specifically correct the wrongs of the past. And um, the history that um, we study needs to be used to inform how we decide to deal with peace and promote justice. And so, yes, Ms. Edwards, amazing, amazing teacher and educator, and those words stuck with me. Um, you know, racism, I believe, in many ways is a learned behavior. And what we know, even with um, looking at this book and the research that I'm doing, is that descendants, but we'll talk about this later on, I imagine, in the conversation about um, the ways in which racism and um, racial terror are learned, it's learned behavior. But children are 
in attendance at a lot of these lynchings historically, definitely the case of Matthew Williams. And when I think about even our education system, I think about the words of Ms. Edwards and um, Professor Edwards, it's important that we're taught the right part of history, the truth of history. Um, and so made a major impact on me, indelible impact that I never, I'll never forget that day in that class. So before we get started, let's talk a little bit about the entity you represent. Who is John Mitchell Jr. and why does his name headline your program? John Mitchell Jr. was an anti-lynching advocate, a publisher. He owned his own bank. He was a political leader in Virginia. He was also a former slave. And he emerged um, at a time when black leaders and um, black social leaders and political leaders were, in many ways, some of them were a lot, a lot of them were silent and they didn't have the resources they needed to speak truth to power. He not only as a native of Virginia, but he also was a national figure in terms of the black press, right? And he boldly spoke out against racial terror and lynching, even taking on the Klan in his op-eds. And so he became extremely popular as a national political and social leader, but his legacy is really um, overlooked. And I was able to connect with early on with the descendants of John Mitchell and get the blessing from his family, including Miss Kimberly Wilson, who's uh, one of our board of advi- who's the leader of our board of advisors, as well as her brother, Judge Owen Wilson, to really help me craft this program and to really connect the legacy of John Mitchell to the work that needs to happen in this country. One of his famous sayings was, how loudly and cry loud until America hears our call. And he did just that. And so for me, I'm honored to continue to develop this program and to continue on his legacy as well. That brings me to a a more contemporary subject. You know, we're going to talk about the Matt Williams case and the book. What you hear today is, look, these were bad things. This happened in December 4th, 1931. Many of the issues that we talk about, issues related to slavery, issues related in the period after slavery, these were things in the past. Should we not even engage on? Should we just push them aside and not talk about them or address them at all? Because they were in the past and I've had people literally tell me they have absolutely zero to do with me. I didn't do this. I don't believe in it. I support people of color. I support the things they do. I don't understand why we would deal with this issue. That's really, to me, was at the heart of this whole discussion, the whole pushback that you're seeing in critical race theory, right? People don't want to talk about this. They don't want to have to deal with it. And it's a difficult conversation to have. It makes people feel bad and uncomfortable. And if they don't believe it and it's not them, why should they? So given that you focus in this space, you're the expert. I want you to tell the audience your thoughts on why it's important. Well, to your point around critical race theory, I can start there. I see critical race theory as being a Trojan horse of sorts that really it represents an attack on truth-telling and more inclusive representations of history um, and the truth about our nation, specifically those who are most marginalized amongst us, right? I think that's really the attack, specifically one of the things that I hear oftentimes being a former secondary education teacher is that white students may potentially be uncomfortable about some of these topics. However, when we think about 
the ways in which I know I can think about my experiences. We think about the ways in which, you know, we had the one week or one unit on enslavement or on the civil rights movement, how uncomfortable it was to see the videos of Bull Connor turning hoses on protesters or learning about enslaved individuals, leaders like um, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. Black people and marginalized black and brown people throughout the history of this country in classrooms have been uncomfortable for years, specifically when they fail to see themselves within the things they're studying, right, and the things they're learning. I think that is really the larger problem, and if we're not careful, critical race theory will be used as a Trojan horse to really attack the real issue, which is really to not allow those who are marginalized their voices to be heard. But also, it's just about this feeling of comfort. America, we have a really big issue with being comfortable, right? Specifically, we just don't want to deal with the truth. And that's really what this book and the work that I'm doing is about, right? Um, We want to take, I think, a detour, if you will. We don't want to go through the messiness of history or the messiness or the issues that we have dealt with. We want to maintain this image of being um, perfect. However, the stories of those who are most marginalized amongst us, they've been hidden and suppressed. And for me, I see, when we think about America, we have to look at America uh, not only in moments of triumph, but also the moments of tragedy. And we have to be able to acknowledge, which is a very important, I think, the first step when we think about healing this country, we think about healing race, we have to acknowledge these things. Acknowledgement is the first step. And for so many years, people of color, specifically black people in this country, have been dealing with the legacy of racial terror and racial violence, right? And in many ways, it's so traumatic to not be believed, even when there's histories, you know, it's documented. You know, the Tulsa massacre is one of the most documented massacres globally. It's not a slavery thing, right? Exactly, correct. I mean, it was it was well after slavery, yeah, right? Exactly, and, and, and you know, it, but the thing is, and if we're not careful, and that's why I think this work is so important and the work that continues to need to be done across the country, Tulsa is one of hundreds of black cities and black communities that were targeted in this very same way. And I I don't mean so much as direct violence, which is what we saw in Tulsa, but systemic violence as well. And that's what I want people to understand, I think, about lynching, about racial terror. It's a message crime that's really used to stifle black political power, black economic power. After lynching happened, there were other systemic forms of racism that emerged to do the damage that racial terror, violent racial terror once did. And so we see that as well. And I think that's equally as difficult and traumatic to deal with. And so hopefully that answers your question, Doc. I want you to react to this statement. This is the response that I've heard to this discourse back and forth on people feeling comfortable and not comfortable. If you cannot deal with the truth of what has happened in the country, both in positive and in negative, then how do you get to reconciliation? There seems to be a place here where understanding, teaching, and learning about these subjects actually can be beneficial to the overall society. Oh, definitely. But I think, again, we have to begin to recognize and embrace being uncomfortable. And I think we also have to value the concept. As someone who um, is actually is a Christian, you know, this whole concept of redemption, reconciliation, 
is very consistent with um, what we know and what we read about in the Bible. I mean, it's very interesting when we see a lot of evangelicals and others who really can't see the value of this truth-telling, right? Right. And, and truth-telling being the first step, right? You can't talk about the trauma crucifixion, all these horrific things and get to the greater glory, right, in terms of Christian theology. We don't ignore that. We can't ignore the brutalization of that. But when it comes to the most oppressed people in our country, we want to ignore this brutalization, this history, this wrongdoing, and then jump to the greater glory or this salvation. I get it. You know, so I think for me. No, I get This is exactly right. I mean, you bring up that spiritual aspect of this, right? And you make in reference to John 8.32 in the Bible, where it says, then you shall know the truth. And the truth, a truth shall set you free, right? Exactly. Yeah. I get it. Let me take on a different thread here. Your book takes place in the city of Salisbury, Maryland. And it has a recently acknowledged history of racial terror, and it's announced the formation of a Truth, Racial Unity, Transformation, and Healing Advisory Committee. The 13-member body that it put in place will provide recommendations to the mayor concerning ways the city can tackle existing racial issues and potential solutions. And this is a direct result of a collaboration with your program and the research that you uncovered in your book. I see this as an amazing example of how the university can contribute uh, to the education and the evolution of society as it comes to grips with its past. What does it feel like to have your work front and center in terms of a community grappling with this issue? I'm deeply honored by this opportunity to work with this community, but I'm really honored to do so at Mason, specifically with the Carter School and also with African and African American Studies. Because early on and in my PhD, you know, in the journey, in my academic journey, I always recognized myself as someone who I just couldn't write monographs about history that didn't really inform the present and were in direct conversation. Growing up in you know North Carolina and then coming to Baltimore, recognizing the importance of black cultural institutions and black history, it really made a major impact on me. And from that day forward, I decided that the, if I'm going to do history, it's going to have to make an impact on things that we're witnessing, the injustices that we're witnessing to this day, right? And so from the onset, when I sought out to investigate this case and learn more about this community, I wanted to reconstruct the story and provide um, truth to corroborate the stories of the oppressed members of this community and really bring healing to the community overall. That was my main goal. But again, I didn't shy away from the history or the research. I didn't just say, you know, here's a couple of newspaper articles. Now let's talk about this, how we can heal from this event, right? I wanted to salvage the humanity of the victims, but also the community, and then bring that to the overall um, larger community today and provide them with an opportunity to reckon with this. It's, it's been a major honor, but I think this is what universities should be doing across the country. While we're cleaning our own house up and getting our own house in order, we also have to be able to do collaborative research in collaboration, in support of, and alongside communities that are seeking to begin again and confront the racial um, legacies that they have yet to face. Um, I think it's really important for institutions to do that. And it's not necessarily consistent with what 
institutions have done historically, specifically around racial violence or terror, but it's something we have to do in this politically volatile moment. Um, and the thing about Salisbury that's so powerful is that it's a bipartisan and interracial group that has emerged that um, is working together to really confront this history. And that group includes descendants as well. See, that's the amazing part of it, right? This doesn't have to be a white people on one side of an issue and black people on the other. When you start to deal in truth, you can reconcile those feelings and actually use that as a mechanism to bring people together. That's the part of this that, that gets missing, right? Folk immediately polarize themselves and they miss the core aspect of John 832. Exactly. It's the truth that sets you free, right? It's not hiding that truth. You get what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think even with the nature of archives and why things are hidden, all of us deserve to know the truth about the, our ancestors' roles in the lynchings, but also the truth about um, maybe whites or blacks who stood up and spoke out. That's right? exactly right. You know, yeah. It's not just the trauma. It's also the work of those who held the line and fought for justice. When their voices are suppressed, this hope and this idea of democracy that we cling to is, is suppressed as well. And this is the part of the history that I think gets lost, right? The reality of the situation is that black people did not free themselves from slavery. It was largely white people who did that. You get what I'm saying? Sometimes fighting their own family members, right? That's a history to me that is powerful, right? And if you only focus on the negative aspects of slavery, you miss the fact that there was a group of Americans who rose above that. Exactly. You get what I mean here? To me, that's the whole point, right? Huh. So let me talk a little bit about Matt Williams. Tell us, who was he and why did his story resonate so much with you? Matt Williams was a 23-year-old laborer who, after losing his mother and father, lived with his aunt. He dropped out of school early on and began working with his employer, DJ Daniel Elliott. He was very frugal, as the story goes, with his money. And he actually had money in two bank accounts during the Great Depression, which was really remarkable during this time. And basically, he was a, he was a human being whose life was lost. I think that's really what I wanted to do with the book, salvage his humanity. Because when we think about all of these cases throughout the history of this country, specifically anti-black violence, and these cases where you have black people just dying unjustly, there's an attempt to dehumanize them, their story. And a lot of scholarship on lynching focuses specifically on the politics of lynching, how lynchings are you know, connected to the media. But what I wanted to do with this book is salvage the humanity of this victim and talk about his, his community, who he was. What did he like to do? I did as much um, work as a historian as I did as a genealogist for this book in trying to track down even descendants who could tell me more about those who he loved. And so William stuck to me um, in my research. And there was a later lynching that took place in 1933 that everyone focused on. Um, it was a major lynching, the last lynching supposedly in Maryland. And I said, you know, I think that potentially this lynching, the lynching of Matthew, um, the lynching of George Armwood in 1933, is more than likely representative of uh, a collection of anti-black violence around the Depression. And, and you know what we know about racial terror lynching and racial violence throughout the history of our country, it, it emerges right around times of economic turmoil. 
right? So we post reconstruction when the South is trying to rebuild, racial terror lynchings emerge, the Ku Klux Klan emerges. Um, right at the turn of the 20th century, we have the numbers of lynching reach their peak where you have an economic crisis in the 1890s and then again in 1931. 1929, at the height of the Great Depression, beginning of the Great Depression, you have racial terror again, specifically targeted towards black communities. And in the case of Matthew Williams, what I noticed is that it's not only a target on black men specifically, but also black laborers, right? And most people here, most people know about the Scottsboro case. And it's no coincidence that the same group that was supporting Matthew Williams, was supporting the Scottsboro Boys, was the same group supporting Matthew Williams. And these were a group of black labor targeted racial terrors, um, lynchings that, you know, were going on in this country at the time. So I think that's really what stuck with Matthew Williams with me. I could have chose a, a number of the 40 victims, but his story um, was so relevant, specifically as we went through, um, in the modern sense, this economic crisis and we see the emergence of Black Lives Matter. I think it speaks to the ways in which we can learn from this period and his story and, and find the right thing to do as regards to confronting anti-Black violence today. You mentioned a number of these other cases and other lynchings. What was probably little known, but Maryland had at least 40 of what are called spectacle lynchings after the abolition of slavery in 1864. And so can you talk a little bit about what exactly is a spectacle lynching? And can you describe the scene at the Williams lynching? So spectacle lynchings are uh, ritualistic killings. Racially motivated um, spectacle lynchings took place during enslavement, but they also continued into the 50s and even um, in the modern era as well in Jasper, Texas. It's very important when we think about lynchings and we see the iconic images. There was a famous book by the late Congressman John Lewis, Without Sanctuary, that documented the photographs. What you'll see in most of the lynching photographs are thousands of people, crowds, Mm -hmm. of whites who gathered to witness the spectacle of lynching, this ritual parade. It was almost, it was a pastime. People had picnic baskets, and it was advertised on trains. They were pre-planned, and they were message crimes used to reinforce racial hierarchies and to put black communities on notice. They very seldomly were about the individual who committed the crime. But black people didn't go to the actual lynching, right? So, so they didn't, they didn't get to see what took place. Is that right? In some cases, now my book is the story that I detail in my book is kind of, it's very unique because um, one of the individuals who Dr. A.D. Brown he actually passes as white and he's able to witness this this lynching and he oh. describes the scene of the lynching and the, the men dragging the, um, Williams's body through the city uh, while the police were directing traffic. And Matthew Williams, his lynching actually began, it was a process that began in the hospital, the Negro ward of the hospital, and ended at the entrance of the black community of Georgetown, the neighborhood of Georgetown, Salisbury, Maryland. Because of the statements that I've been able, that I was able to gather from the witnesses, the other black patients in his book, as well as some of the white nurses and aides there, we know about that scene. And you had other black patients who were in tears, crying as the mob came in, 
and Matthew Williams was dragged out of the and straightjacketed and thrown out of the window, stabbed with an ice pick and dragged downtown. And it was a parade of sorts. There were thousands of people there in the city. It was in the newspaper. They were running ads. It was, it was a horrific scene. There were government and local officials there, political officials in the state, in town. Mm-hmm. Um, Oftentimes when we think of racial terror lynchings, while I think focusing on Maryland in this case is so important, we think of Mississippi, Deep South. You know, this lynching to me was a representation of the same type of lynchings that we demonize and we look down on in terms of happening justifiably so in Mississippi. No, this happened in the free state as well, a few miles from Washington, D.C., close proximity, right? Um, I get it. Yeah. Was he accused of some crime? What's the background? Sure. So Matthew Williams was accused of shooting his employer, Daniel D.J. Elliott, who was a um, businessman and a um, he owned his lumberyard. And that was the original story that was told that he went into his um, boss's office and shot him. However, through my investigation, my research, I was able to identify uh, um, investigation transcripts and interviews from eyewitnesses. One eyewitness, again, was the mysterious and interesting Dr. A.D. Brown. He was actually tending to a patient across the street when the whole scene happened. And the story just historically does not hold up, but also after doing a thorough investigation to oral histories for between both blacks and whites, we discovered that it was actually D.J. Elliott's son who murdered him. So the guy who owned the lumber yard was murdered by his son? Correct. That is what both black and white um, members of the community corroborate. And I, and I want to make sure I'm clear, uh, the, the owner of the lumberyard was white. Correct. Yes. Okay. Um, and he had, Williams had been working for him for quite some time. And the story really goes that the son was a drunkard and not good with money, bad in gambling, and he was an embarrassment to his father. And Matthew Williams had loaned him money, which is a, indeed, as I mentioned, an embarrassment to be getting money from a black man during this time and Williams called him was tired of of not getting repaid and so he went directly to the source he went to the father Um, and it was at that time that the story goes that Elliot shot the father and then turned the gun on Williams and then blamed Williams for all of it and that's when the lynching party began to gather I get it okay that makes that that makes some sense you mentioned then that uh, that these lynchings had continued all the way up into Jasper Texas and I assume you're talking about James Byrd Yes, James Byrd, correct. Um, okay. I do think it's important for us to understand when we think about lynching specifically, people think of you know the rope being needed. You know, when we think about racial terror lynchings, I am of the ilk um, to believe that Ahmaud Arbery was lynched. Um, and in a number of um, databases, his death is being um, included as a uh, racial terror lynching. But definitions are important. But if we're not careful, we will also overlook the equally as traumatic racially motivated murders that continued beyond the um, lynchings, racial terror lynchings specifically. Wow, this is really, really interesting. So I assume that in writing the book, you talk about the eyewitness accounts. So that meant you had to physically go and sit down with people, right? The people who witnessed it. I assume you had to sit down and talk to people, white and black. So can you talk a little bit about that whole process and what it was like for you engaging the relatives of people who actually witnessed what happened to Matt Williams. It started with the records. And so I discovered the records in the Maryland State Archives. And traditionally, 
there's just no evidence. The only evidence we really have and sources we really have in terms of racial violence and lynching, racial terror lynching, that's newspaper accounts, mostly from white newspaper accounts who scandalize and, you know, like most media outlets then and unfortunately now, trying to sell papers, they are dramatic in their representations. It's very difficult to get specifically the perspective of um, black communities. And so thankfully we had the black press that was there as well, represented by the Afro-American. However, we did not have, and we don't have, actual tangible investigation records. And that was something that I sought out early on. Um, And I discovered those records at the Maryland State Archives as a um, doctoral student at Morgan State University. And I recall that moment in the book having to call down the nephew of Alex Haley, Chris Haley, who was equally as astonished as I was to discover these boxes of investigation records. So there were investigative records in the Maryland State Archives. Were these records police reports? Were they eyewitness accounts? What was in these records? There were eyewitness accounts, photographs. I also discovered the journal of an undercover Pinkerton detective agent who infiltrates the mob. And we had eyewitness accounts from both blacks and whites who witnesses lynching. They were hidden away in a moving storage box, a modern day moving storage box, thrown on top of each other. And they were stored off site. It actually took three days to get them there. And I- Well, how did you know to look for them? <laughs> that's a good question. Everybody asked me that. So I thought about, and this is where the methods piece comes in. And this is what I'm teaching on Monday nights um, to my doctoral students in Carter the importance of mixed methods, but also understanding specifically the ways in which archival institutions are structured, right? I'm a firm believer in making sure that we have to understand the ways in which systemic racism also informed our policies and practices regarding the keeping, processing, um, and storage of records and materials, specifically materials associated with the most marginalized in our society. And so with that frame in mind, recognizing that we only all have historically had one side, right? The empirical side, the newspapers, the white press, that's the only side that we've had. I said, there has to be something out there. There has to be records out there. And so I began to double back on work through the newspapers and I noticed that there was um, an investigation. There were reports that were referenced. And so I went looking for those reports and I stumbled upon them online in the offsite facility. And it was very interesting. And Chris Haley uh, and I caught, recalled being so startled by the fact that the documents, even though they were 90 years old, they were restricted. And for us, when we saw restriction, a restriction on 90 year old documents, and they were very vague in the description, it was like um, racial violence on the Eastern shore. And it was a massive folder. The, the document was about 800 pages of detail of different um, items that hadn't been processed. So literally it's a list of documents specifically um, pertaining to racial violence, pertaining to other oh, areas. Oh, so it wasn't just about Matthew Williams. No, the, the box actually had another lynching as well, the case of George Armwood, which um, I'm working with that community as well. But yeah, it was a number of cases and they were all in this box, thrown in disarray, deteriorating. It was at that time that I worked with the archives, I worked with Chris to process the documents, restore them properly catalog them and go through them. And I also held the story and held these records along with Chris and the archives and worked on this book diligently. Finally, I was honored to be able to connect with the descendants of Matthew Williams, who I shared this story with. Wow. That is really, really interesting. Somebody went through the trouble to preserve, to keep them, but then also went through the trouble to hide it. (laughs) Listen. Isn't that something? 
Yeah, I mean, I call what I talk about in the book. I was very careful to say, you know, don't accuse anyone of hiding, but I call it hidden in full view. I think what happens is because certain records are just not valued. I mean, it's the same thing. Like, I, and this is why the work of the archives is so important. The work that we're doing. No, I get, I get exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the data was there. People said, ah, oh, it's not really worth that much. They throw it in a box. They put it off to the side because of who it is. And then nobody thinks to go look because this is the stack of, of archive data that probably isn't worth anything, right? Exactly, exactly. And No, I get it. I get it 100%. So that may mean that there's other information out there. Oh, definitely. I, I believe so. And that's why the, the work that we're doing in establishing this archive for racial and cultural healing is so essential across this nation. And we're utilizing the national movement and leadership is utilizing the Salisbury community to serve as a model for this National Archive for Culture and Racial Healing, where we can democratize the records associated with injustices perpetuated against black communities right. throughout this country. Now, let me ask you this. Did Matt Williams have any children? No, he did not. He did not. Um, okay. I, I so was, so you, you said you mentioned descendants. Were these cousins? Talk to me about the descendants. Sure. So the collateral, his collateral descendants is what we call them instead of lineal descendants. But the grandmother who raised him, Addie Black, her great-granddaughter, Addie Black's great-granddaughter, Miss Jeannie Jones, um, is actually the descendant of uh, Matthew Williams, who we connected with, who's in California. And I recall it was about a year ago, I was in my Masonville townhome, on the floor, going through the records, and I got the um, call from the genealogist who I had hired that we she thinks she had pinpointed um, the descendants, and I left a message on um, one of Miss Jones's aunt's phone, and she recalled that moment. Miss Jones talks about it um, in the documentary that we've done uh, about being startled, and she actually thought that it was someone modern day. A cousin has been lynched. A cousin has been lynched is what her aunt told her. And she called me back and had no clue about this history. All she had known is that her family at one point in time had left that region to go to, you know, like most black families, to the north or to D.C. or to other areas, not knowing that they were, in fact, escaping and running from racial terror. Wow. That, <laughs> that is amazing. So you talk about that these lynchings were connected to times of economic upheaval, yep. times of economic difficulty. It's interesting that we saw in fairly recent times, not necessarily upticks in lynchings, but upticks in racial violence in the country uh, starting in 2019, 2020, all throughout the violence against Asian Americans in the last couple of years, coupled directly to COVID. So we saw those things happen. We're not in a depression. We're not in a recession. We are in a time where there is a widening gap between those who have and those who have not. Can you talk about what is the connection to today? Well, I think it speaks to, you know, when I think about the economic anxiety, which is what I kind of laid out. It's not so much always necessarily economic anxiety. It's really, it can be political anxiety or social anxiety. Really also it's about when I, you know, whiteness or white identity um, as we know it, this idea or this myth of what is American is being threatened, right? That is the biggest piece of this. And what um, I think is important to understand about my work also is how the class element is essential to understanding this. In investigating the lynch mob, 
and diving deep into these records and this history and this story. We gain insight into the ways in which poor white laborers were used by elites and others in the white community to enact this justice, right? To do the dirty work that their hands were too clean to do. And it became very clear as I finished this book that in many ways, at least in terms of economically, these poor whites who were being who were um, lynching Matthew Williams had more in common with the poor black laborers than they did with the elites, right? Oh, that's right. And and so even to this day, I think we see this same game being played. This is exactly part of this whole truth-related issue. We're seeing that in society today, that when you don't have right. There are one groups that pit one group against another, right? There's some folk that say, okay, my challenge is that they're immigrants and the immigrants are coming in and taking my jobs, right? And you don't just have poor white people with that notion. I've actually heard it from poor black people. Exactly. Right? Uh, It's an us against them and the us changes. But really, fundamentally, we're talking about a class issue here. And the fact of the matter is, is that capitalism is leaving out large groups of people. It's not racially driven. It's a function of the capitalist structure that we have in our systems. And it's solvable. It's solvable inside of capitalism. But we got to recognize that there is a challenge and we have to work together to address it. Even at times when we have been racially as polarized or even more polarized than we are now. There were groups of people who start to realize this and start to bring together. You know, people talk about the Black Panthers. Fred Hampton was one of the individuals who actually started to realize that the issues that were affecting poor blacks were affecting poor whites. And he actually started to reach out to white supremacist groups and was able to get audiences with these individuals to begin to talk about the common problems that were affecting both communities. And that's when he lost his life. Right. And so there is clearly a connection that is one of class between people across the different races that I think requires more examination and more research. Definitely. I think we have to look to history as a a guide in many ways for us to understand how to deal with what we're witnessing before our eyes. I think there's just so many parallels to your point. The the pandemic, I think, shined a light on specifically the realities of what happens when we have an unequal and unfair and unbalanced system around health care. You know, at at that point, when we had this virus um, that emerged and still among us, it didn't matter how much money you had, um, you in in some way you all were you everyone was fearful and affected. And I think for a lot of people, it exposed them to realities that uh, marginalized communities have faced throughout the history of this country, specifically around health care and having access. Oh, I get it. I get it 100 percent. But even that, even when you look at COVID-19, to be honest with you, there was a real class divide there, right? If you look at the top 25% wage earners, more than 60% of them were able to work from home and still get paid. And so that means that they were not as exposed to the virus because they could shelter and they could shelter in place. And the bottom 25% of wage earners, fewer than 10% of them could work from home. So they actually had to go out 
and they had to be in, and this was in the early days when there were no vaccines. And so what you saw was that in those marginalized communities, those poor communities, you saw much higher incidences of COVID. And oftentimes today, when we look, we say, okay, African-Americans and Latinos had higher incidences of COVID. It's never coupled to the fact that a higher percentage right. of those individuals actually had to work. They had to leave their homes and they had to go out into the environment where COVID was raging. And so they were more susceptible. And that led to higher rates. That, that led higher rates in the brown communities. That led to higher rates in black communities. That's really what the issue was. And it led to higher rates in poor white communities, too. So there is a strong class uh, issue even there that's healthcare related relative to COVID. And so all of this stuff, in my opinion, is interrelated. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think this is one of the reasons why we really have to hold the line um, and promote truth telling and work through the weeds here and the ways in which this history has been politicized and find a way to make sure that these stories are being told and that we're learning from these stories through um, research and practice. And I'm, I'm so honored to have students who will be coming with me to Salisbury to do some interviews in March as a part of the work we're doing. So we want to continue to model this type of work for the region and for the nation as well. So I saw something as, as I was doing the prep for this that I thought was real interesting. So you wrote the forward to your book on January 6th yes. as the insurrection was happening, right? So talk to me about what you learned about mob psychology mm-hmm. and how did that incident inform what you were actually writing in the forward? Wow. It was just really traumatic, to be quite honest. I remember talking to my publicist. I'm like, I'm not going to meet this deadline. I can't. This I needed. I had to take a week off after I had witnessed the insurrection because, you know, I've been five years, spent five years understanding these mobs, hearing their day to day thoughts and how they were processing the, the decisions that they made. And here it is right before our eyes. We see a mass of people. Who are gathering for a number, um, you know, a number of reasons. Some to actually, I think, some in that group, just like in mobs, are there to witness what's going to happen. They don't know exactly what is going to happen, but they're part of the frenzy. And once the frenzy emerges, it's too late. And so, even if you were there just to protest peacefully, it didn't matter because you got swept up, right? Exactly. And I think that for me was was so clear. And then also seeing the guillotines and the nooses coupled with the um, there was a gentleman who became famous, unfortunately, for having a Camp Auschwitz. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Naked. All these things came back to me as I wrote this book. And I think we really have to begin to look at the ways in which historically this type of behavior is always been justified or swept under the rug. And I feel like that's really what's happening. Um, a large portion of our country, unfortunately, is trying to get past this moment, this violent moment um, that was televised on TV. It's, it was live for all to see. And months before, there was a Black Lives Matter protest, and we had more, more armed guards there than we did on the Bay of Pigs, right? It's like... Ah, that's you know, right. I get you. And, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, there are lots of folk who don't want to talk about what happened there also. It follows that same kind of approach to dealing with issues of truth. Exactly. Right? And that's what we have to deal with. We And this is what black people for many years and black and brown people have been trying to show. This for me was an example, right? It is very clear 
you literally have peaceful protesters on one side who are black and who are for black causes who are met with an army and then on the other end what we witnessed is what you know we witnessed historically with the in, in lynchings you witnessed law enforcement and others always you know they did the, me- the best they could with what they had but they for some reason it just they weren't prepared like they should have been this never would have been the case if it was black and brown people um, at least I believe that a lot of black pe- brown people believe that as well you saw the evidence of that when the Black Lives Matter protesters came to Washington, D.C., the level of military force. Definitely. I actually have a picture of this. It highlights the level of military force that was on the steps of the Capitol it was just overwhelming. Yeah. There's no right. If, if you had that force on January 6th, there's no way the Capitol would have been breached, right? It just would not have been possible with that level of military there, right? But you got to look at this from the other side as well, not all of those protests that transpired in and around the whole Black Lives Matter movement were protests that were peaceful. Correct. Lots of damage to physical structures, lots of damage to buildings, property, and the like. Maybe my opinion is biased. From a relative perspective, I was shocked to see what happened in January 6th. You know, we have protests in the country all the time. And Oftentimes, property is damaged and the like, but to see folk going to the halls of the Capitol and have it be destroyed like that was 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 just shocking to me. There's just no other way, no other way to put it. Yeah, I think we we have to make sure to call it what it is an insurrection, and I talk about it. In- yeah, that's exactly right. Interestingly enough. Mitch McConnell called it an insurrection yesterday. Yes, I saw that, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, is the is a is this a sign of hope? What is equally is frustrating about this is that communities of color and people throughout this country have been examining, and there's over 6,500 racial terror lynchings, and there's so much history around terror. Right? It's like it takes, and this is where Professor. Lynn Edwards, my teacher's work is so important. Her words are so fitting. If you allow it, it will consume you. And it speaks to what really happens when we ignore the oppression of others. Like, why does it have to get to this point to where people have to descend upon the halls of Congress? No, I get it. I get it. It's very frustrating. In time, I think we're going to discover a significant amount of information about what really happened and what led up to this time. And so I'd be interested in seeing it, even though, you know, (laughs) we started talking about Nat Williams and we wind up coming to this point. But in my opinion, all these issues are interrelated. As we wrap up here, let me ask you a going forward question. Do we need a national truth and reconciliation program similar to what Salisbury, Maryland is doing? Do we need that nationally to help the country move forward? Yes. I mean, we have to have one. It's essential. It's tied to the success and the longevity of our democracy. We have to confront these issues, these these historical truths and the present truths. It really comes down to systemic racism and the misunderstanding associated with common notions of systemic racism. Our country, really, we failed to really deal with the roots and our foundation. I believe that due to us as a country being founded in anti-blackness, sexism, and racism, and and, and the ways in which our founding policies and documents were developed, the outcomes are very clear, right? Systemic racism, as you've often said, is about outcomes in many ways. And if we look at these outcomes, it it is very clear um, that people of color 
have been disproportionately affected by these systemic issues. And it shows up in education, it shows up in criminal justice system, healthcare. And the Truth Commission provides America with an opportunity, as it has done across this country, across the world, really. Truth Commissions provide the U.S. and countries with an opportunity to reset, to deal with the truth. And then have that truth be the basis of moving forward and addressing the issue. Uh, Look, I, I am really thankful. This has been a really, really fascinating conversation. I'm glad you could spend some time with me and some time with Mason Nation to kind of highlight the great work that you're doing. Thank and you. I'm sure we're going to have plenty of more to come. Definitely, definitely. Thank you so much, Dr. Um, Washington, for having me. It's an honor and keep doing the amazing work you're doing for our university. Well, that's going to wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. I'd like to thank Dr. Charles Chavis, an assistant professor of conflict resolution and history at Mason and director of African and African-American studies and the founder and executive director of Mason's John Mitchell Jr. Program for History, Justice and Race. Until next time, this is Mason President Gregory Washington saying, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.